When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I am Kevin Hassett, the author of The Drift and the former chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. And I think that Steve Gates' message that you should refuse to be a victim is the best message that one can possibly have in society today. Because there are people who want to make you a victim, and we need to educate ourselves about them and stand up. And that's what this show does. And you're listening to A Call to Write. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the exciting show that you tell us you like so much, the Call to Rights Radio Show, with me, your host, Steve Kate. For well over 15 years, the main theme of our radio show has and always will continue to be this, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, American exceptionalism, and as we say on this radio show proudly, a victim is simply someone with no options, always fight back legally and responsibly. And as we continue with our historical subject matter, we also interview so many of the regnery people who do provide us with some great books to open our minds. And today, in just a few moments, we'll be meeting someone very special to this audience, Kevin A. Hassett, his brand new book, The Drift, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. We do appreciate his time ahead of time. But a brief introduction of our very special guest, Kevin Hassett, a distinguishing visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and managing director of the Lindsay Group. Served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors from 2017 to 2019 and returning to the White House as a senior advisor to President Trump. He helped guide the economic response to the coronavirus pandemic and prior to his White House service, Hassett was a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a senior economist for the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. A graduate of Swarthmore College, he earned his Ph.D. from the University of Pennsylvania and is taught at Columbia University and the New York University School of Law. He's the author of the best-selling books, Tao 36,000 and Bubbleology. Kevin, thank you for joining us on the Call to Write show today. How are you? Well, it's a real honor to be here. Thank you so much, Steve. Well, thank you, sir. And as we go back for those lexicographers out there, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the main title of the book, What is a Drift? And the dictionary says something like this, something driven, propelled, or urged along, or drawn together in a clump. But Evan Hassett's dictionary and his definition of the drift is as follows, and I quote, the tendency of a capitalistic society that has long prospered with free speech and free markets to produce intellectuals, politicians, institutions, and media that propel said society towards socialism and totalitarianism, end of quote. Kevin, it's an honor to have you here, as I mentioned before, and talk a little bit about the, the position that you held there at the White House. The Council of Economic Advisors, you were the 29th chairman. That's a high honor. Yeah, thank you very much. You know, it's really the, the sort of highest honor that an economist can have to be the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. And, you know, the radio audience will definitely know lots of people who've had that job before, like Alan Greenspan, Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, um, Marty Feldstein, and so on. And, and so it really, I was stunned and honored when the president asked me to do it. And your job as the CEA chair 
is to be the main economic advisor for the president. And the CEA chair also has an enormous amount of sort of unique authority within the White House because it was created sort of separately than a lot of the jobs in the White House. It was created by the 46 Employment Act. And back then, uh, Congress was worried that we might turn into a socialist country because you could end up with liberals of the White House who uh, didn't really uh, believe in capitalism. And so they made this thing called the Council of Economic Advisors, uh, where we basically have a direct line to the president, and it's filled with economists. And our job is to basically, in some sense, defend free markets and explain to the president what's going on with the economy and uh, what policies might do if we pursue this or that. It's interesting, Kevin. You say in your opening quotes here in the uh, little paperwork that comes with these particular books, and also in the book, that you weren't always a Trump supporter. So tell us a little bit about that, and then as being around this individual and this particular Republican administration, you changed your views on many of these subjects, but describe your early days of not necessarily being a Trump supporter and, and kind of what made the change, and I think the audience would love to hear that, much of which is in the book, of course. Oh, sure, yeah, and, and I think that, that I don't want people to think that I was ever you know, opposed to Donald Trump. Sure. But I was just like everybody else, sort of skeptical about him. I, I only knew what I saw on TV. Um, I had worked as an advisor uh, for previous presidential candidates, John McCain and George Bush and Mitt Romney, and was probably uh, from my perch as research director at the American Enterprise Institute, viewed as kind of the type of establishment Republican that isn't normally associated with Donald Trump. But when uh, the president asked me to take the job, I was honored and I agreed to do it, but I didn't exactly know what I was in for. Uh, you know, I had only seen him on The Apprentice a little bit uh, and was a little bit worried about, uh, you know, whether I would do well in the position. Uh, in particular, one of the problems I had was that, uh, that a lot of the people that were big fans of the president didn't seem to be big fans of me because I had different positions than the president sure. on a few things, like, for example, um, free trade, uh, where I had a pretty well-established position, as most economists do, that was you know different from the president's. But I got into the White House, and I started working with him and seeing him in action in the Oval and in meetings about economic policy. And I grew to be very, very close friends with President Trump, and you can see that sort of evolution in the book, yeah. so much so that I even just had dinner with him down at Mar-a-Lago a few weeks ago. You know, awesome. th that kind of change is something that I never expected, and I'm sure he didn't expect either, because you might recall at the beginning of the administration, he said things like, oh, I never hired an economist. <laughs> you know, yeah. I don't think economists are worth <laughs> anything at all. And, 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 you know, so, but I think that, that I proved him wrong about that, and mm -hmm. the two of us worked very, very well together. and. In the book, we talk about all of the great economic accomplishments of the Trump administration, and I go into a lot of sort of inside baseball, like take you inside the room, the Roosevelt Room or the Oval Office, oh, yeah. where the president was literally designing economic policies to fight the drift. And he himself, uh, you might recall, all the way back to the convention before he's elected president, spoke a lot about the Democrats or many Democrats' devotion to socialism. And uh, as I was right there on the front lines fighting socialism, I more and more became aware that there really is a drift in our country that's very close to, to winning. Uh, and it's super important to identify it, to identify the people behind it, and to think about both what Donald Trump did to fight them and what we can do to keep the fight going. Ladies and gentlemen, if you're just joining us on the Call to Rights Radio Show, we thank you for your time and interest 
in the subject matter that we always talk about, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, Second Amendment, and always ways to refuse to be a victim. Our very special guest today, and we're proud to have him and call him a friend of the show, Kevin Hassett. His new book, a regnery book, out about a month or two, but a must-read, ladies and gentlemen, if you're interested in seeing, in this man's opinion, his experience in the White House and where America is not necessarily going to go if people have it their way, like we do on this show, the subtitle, Stopping America's Slide to Socialism. Kevin, I wonder if you could do this more of a humanistic side. What do you think have, that people have so wrong about President Trump from the media side, working around him? I mean, it seems to me when I talk to many people who are in this administration, obviously they have many things to talk about, a singular message that the man was very focused. His plans, of course, were laid out very well and the people around him, though many of them didn't agree or maybe he didn't agree with things. Describe this man from the personal side, maybe as contrary to what the media describes him, you know, all the way from the Russia hoax all the way down. How does President Trump, in your mind, go down in history? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And again, it's something that I, I go very deeply into in, in the book, because I think that one of the things that is the responsibility of people like me who uh, go into a White House is to sort of write or help write the first draft of history, because the opponents of President Trump, you know, they're going to want to write the history of him and, you know, somebody who's actually there had experience working with him every day, you know, needs to portray what it was like. And, and there are a lot of episodes in the, um, my time in the White House, which was stretched almost for the whole four years, uh, that really jump out at me that surprise people when they read the book and talk to me about it. But, but one of them is that uh, uh, one of my favorite stories, is, which shows something about his character and his heart is that uh, my job as the CEA chair uh, is, is really interesting in the sense that a lot of people don't know this, but the, the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors gets all the economic data, which moves markets or potentially moves markets and so on, a day before everybody else in the country. Uh, and the reason is that if the data are going to come out and cause like you know, a market collapse, then we need the White House needs to be ready for that. But of course, the data is very, very closely held with very, very high security but the president would, you know, is allowed uh, to be informed by me about, you know, what the data tomorrow were going to be uh, the night before. And sometimes he wanted to be, and sometimes he didn't want to be, because if he was going to go give a speech somewhere, he didn't want people to accuse him of leaking the data or anything. So he yes, would prefer. I didn't right. tell him, right? right. Uh, but in any case, uh, one morning I had to be in Paris for a diplomatic mission. And it was uh, it was going to be a jobs day, you know, where the employment numbers come out, which is one of the right. biggest numbers. And the president wanted to be briefed on the uh, employment numbers by my chief of staff, a woman named DJ Nordquist, who, you know, when I was in the Oval Office, very often accompanied me. And she and the president just hit it off right from the beginning because they're both New Yorkers. So they, you know, speak with their hands, exactly. and, you know, get, you know, kind of agitated, and, you know, about it. But that special personality so that a New Yorker has, right? Exactly. Right. But in any case, he and DJ and the president you know, really got along. But the president, uh, when I told him I had to be in Paris and so someone else would brief him on the jobs, data, it wouldn't be me. He said, well, just have DJ do it. And, and the thing that was unusual about that is that DJ is not an economist. Of course, she had been around it so much that she probably knows the stuff better than the economists. And, you know, there are other members of the Council of Economic yeah. Advisors that normally would have done that. But with DJ... 
uh, you know, the president says, I want DJ to brief me, then DJ is going to brief him, right? He's the president. Well, anyway, so I'm off in Paris. DJ gets up the morning of the jobs report. She's got to go into the Oval to brief the president. And she's so distracted and nervous about it because it's her first time all by herself exactly. briefing the president that she steps in a pothole uh, oh. on her way to her car outside her house and breaks her leg. Oh, gosh. Okay, but DJ being DJ, and this is like, you know, it sort of reminds me of the Spider-Man scene with the Yorkers, right? So she, yes. she, uh, and, and her parking spot, by the way, is pretty far from the White House. It's within the compound, but it was, you know, a good hundred yards from where she had to go. She parked her car. She walked a hundred yards with a broken leg. She limped into the Oval. She briefed the president, who didn't, you couldn't even tell that she had a broken leg. And then she limped back to her car, went to the hospital, and they had a lot of work to do and put a cast on and all that stuff. Wow, there's a strong personality. (laughs) It's a lot of strong personality, but the thing about, this is a story about President Trump, is that when he found out that this had happened, he sent her the sweetest note about how honored he was to serve with people like her that are so dedicated to the country and how the next time she needs to go to the hospital first. <laughs> and so, I mean, it was just a wonder. And, and that was something that, that was not unusual. Uh, you know, he, so he comes across, of course, he's a very combative person on TV when people are attacking him. But he, he really does have a heart of gold. He, the, one of my um, staffers um, got colon cancer. And he found out about that and, you know, checked in on him all the time and sent him handwritten notes you know, wishing him well. I can't tell you how many times I'd be in the Oval and he would have a friend or a friend of a friend who was in the hospital and he would take the call, especially uh, during the COVID crisis. And so, so he, he really is the kind of person that cares a lot about supporting others in their time of need. And that is something that I almost think he hides from people on TV, right? It's not exactly wow. something that you would expect. Well, Kevin, one of the more humorous ones that I read in the book, and I hope you don't mind me sharing it, is you're saying you're meeting the president and obviously, you're sitting there in the Oval Office, and he has this button, and he pushes it, and you're wondering whether or not, kidding, of course, but it's the nuclear button. But no, it's what? The little alert to help have the butler come back in to, what, replenish the ice for his never-ending Diet Coke? Is that correct? Or to put his diet... Yeah, I think what would happen <laughs> would be he, he would drink about halfway down the Diet Coke, and then hit a button and get the other one. I think it... He probably really doesn't like the when when it gets too icy and you don't really taste much Coke. <laughs> That's exactly right. And so, you know, I never right. saw him have less than half a glass. Of, but but yes, yeah, so I can remember my first time at the Oval. There's this box with a button, and, and when he pushes, <laughs> I'm like, "Oh my God, what's going on?" And then what is that? It's the Diet Coke. Yeah. Well, Kevin, I wanted to jump in the time we have with you, just a little bit more time, if you don't mind, sir. Just wanted to explore some of the side that you're the expert in in this conversation, the economic side. You and, of course, an author, James Glassman, in 1999, write a book that I find so prophetic. It's interesting. The title, very simply, is Dow 36,000. That Tell me if I have this right. I guess the main or one of the premises in the book that stocks are not the what? Uh, the, the lesser, they're, they're not as riskier than treasury bonds. Is that kind of what you were saying there? And then look yeah, what the stock so, market so, is today. Yeah, so, so basically what our book said way back then was that... Uh, Stocks are really risky in the short run. Um, they go up and down. And if you've got money that you might need to access two or three years from now, you sure. should definitely not put it in stocks. But if you hold on to stocks for 10 or 20 years, if you're willing to invest for the long run, then stocks are not really riskier than bonds. They're, they're a reasonably safe investment. In fact, you know there had never been a 20-year period where stocks haven't had a really healthy return all the way you know, going back to the early 1800s and data mm-hmm. that we talk about in the book. 
And so we came out and we basically said that this was after, don't forget, uh, in the 90s, so there were a number of years where the markets went up 20, 30 percent a year uh, and, you know, basically five boom years. And then everybody was saying there were all these people out there saying it's a bubble uh, and don't put your money in stocks. And Jim and I came out and said, well, no, it's not a bubble. Uh, it's just that people are getting more and more comfortable owning stocks and they have more ways to do it with mutual funds and so on. And so it's natural that prices would go up. And so if you're willing to hold for the long haul, then you should invest in stocks. And in fact, uh, we said that, that the Dow would uh, be fairly priced back then, even at 36000 So there was a lot of upside um, for yeah. stocks to have. Well, you probably remember because th- this... I was very young at the time when I wrote this book. It, the book became a sensation, right? I mean, we were on the cover of every magazine, oh, but the left, the left just hated us. Do you remember this? Of course. Like all I the do. abuse that we took yes. from the left. And, and, and it really, it relates back to the drift. So, so the reason why the left hates the idea that everybody owns stocks, everybody should invest in stocks, uh, is that if they do, then they're not going to hate capitalism. Right, because you're going to own some capital, and it's going to do you know make you wealthy, and, and then you're not going to turn against the society that our forefathers built. And, and so I, I really kind of ran into a buzzsaw with Dow thirty six thousand, and of course at the end the numbers vindicated us. But but the buzzsaw was my first introduction to the drift. So why is everybody so upset about? the message that the little guys should own stock. Well, you know, they could just that? go back, Kevin, to November 21st, 2021, when the Dow, what, magically crept up to that mark that your book is entitled. And it's above it. It's above it now. And above it. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Kevin, a couple of more questions that we have, and I know time will run out here. But again, many thanks to you, and I do appreciate your time and service to our country, and especially this radio show. You know Jerome Powell is the Fed chair. I just wanted to know, give us a little crystal ball. I mean, do you really feel that with the, what's happening here with the Biden administration, does it look likely that the Fed chair will raise interest rates here in the, in the short term? Many people are concerned. That, of course, affects mortgages and other things, people's 401ks. What, what, what say you to give us a little prediction? Yeah, and, and one of the uh, things that the CEA chair, chairman does is that every three or four weeks, he has lunch or he or she has lunch with the Fed chair. And so, you know, I was part of the team that helped pick Jay Powell to be the Fed chair. And yeah. I had lunch with him, you know, every month the whole time I was there at the White House. And I know him very well and, of course, don't have any inside uh, uh, baseball uh, knowledge about what he's going to do right now. But I could say that inflation is out of control because yeah. of the really, really reckless spending of Joe Biden and the Democrats. Oh, yeah. And in fact, you know, if if the inflation stops at the double digit levels that we saw in the 1970s, I actually think we might be lucky. I think that it could be worse than that. And Jay Powell's a competent guy. He's a good person. He you know has a job to do, and he intends to do it well. Um, and so, yes, interest rates are going to go up. Interest rates are going to go up quite a bit over the next wow. few years. That's and so, you heard here on the Walter Wright Show, folks. There you yeah, go. if you're wondering whether you should buy a house now or six months from now, I would buy it. A couple of quick ones. What are the main things we need to watch about the creeping of socialism in the drift? Come some key points that, of course, people can read the details of the book. And then I want to get your perspective on what we need to do with China. So many people are concerned. You, of course, held, headed up the uh, second part of the pandemic in the Trump administration. I mean, we're worried about things like this and we're concerned in a more educated way. Yeah, well, I think that socialism is uh, truly the objective of a big chunk of the left. And they don't want just sort of friendly, you know, 1970s Scandinavian style socialism. They want totalitarian socialism. 
And that's why when somebody like you or me goes to a college campus, that there's protests and people get beat up and they try to cancel conservative speakers and so on, because that's basically what they want to do to the country. And so in the book, The Drift, I very carefully detail uh, how that works, who these people are, um, how they're indoctrinating our children uh, to be socialists, and what we could do about it. But I think that the main thing that we all need to recognize is that there's a big chunk of the left in the U.S. that's committed to the drift, that they want our country to become socialist and totalitarian, and that they control universities. And if you wonder what their view is, for what America should look like, you should look at the campuses because that's what that's what they're trying to turn us into. And so that's that's the thing. So if you're a town, and you could think about like some school boards, right? It's starting sure. to do really crazy socialist stuff. You know, that's sure the plan. Are. And and you, when you see it happen, then you should you know read the drift and then you know come up with or, or learn some of the recipes we have for fighting these people. And finally, the China problem. What's a uh, Kevin Hassett on this? I mean, it seems to be everywhere. And I think a lot of people really need to know what's happening with China affecting America's yeah. sovereignty. Well, well, one what of what my favorite anecdotes of the book, which I was actually counseled against putting in the book, um, and it might be that you didn't make it this, this deep into it, uh, is that I'm out in the playground playing basketball with my son one day, and yeah. then I basically get harassed by Chinese spies. And it was because, you know, and then I get told by the security guys that the Chinese spies, you know, that China tries to intimidate people who are in the U.S. government that are involved in China policy. And um, what, you know, we saw these people like taking our picture, two Chinese people or one Chinese person was taking our picture and looking at us. And, and then we drove around the block and another person got in the car with them and it was clear that they were surveilling us. Amazing. And so then, so then my, my son and I actually, which is what I shouldn't have done, followed them. Um, and that's when our security, my security guys later told me that was a really terrible, terrible choice because it could have been dangerous. But the point is that the, the Chinese government is right now, you know, hell bent on, you know, some kind of world conquest, whether it's violent or mm-hmm. economic. Uh, and they don't have the kind of morality. <laughs> the government doesn't. The Christian Chinese people are wonderful, but it's the government that doesn't have the kind of morality that most governments do, and they're willing to do things even like harass people when they're out in the park playing with their kids just to try to intimidate our government. And so the China threat is real. Um, President Trump stood up to them. Uh, It drove them crazy. And President Biden, you know, probably his Afghan policy is better than the way he's treating China right now. And so I would expect both China and Russia to be extremely adventurous over the next few years, and that's a real, real big risk uh, to the global economic order. Well, as you know, in your book, theorist and philosopher Marshall McLuhan said we have to watch media, and I quote here from your book, as he said, TV tends to foster patterns rather than events. You write eloquently. In other words, TV provides a narrative with a theme and a moral. So a lot of the information we're getting here is slanted by our media. You get the last word as we conclude this particular interview with uh, Kevin Hesse. Yeah, well, thank you uh, so much for uh, letting me on your show. And and I can tell you that the bottom line is that the media is filled with people who go through these universities that are hell-bent on socialism and totalitarianism. You know, the top guy at Harvard becomes the top guy at the New York Times. And that these people are engaged in something that patriots need to stand up against. And I think that once you actually look at the details of how it works by looking between the covers of the uh, drift, then you'll understand the gravity of the situation that we face. 
the amazing accomplishments of Donald Trump, who, who understood the drift and stood up to socialism, and the responsibility that really falls to us to identify these folks and stand up to them is really serious. Um, and well, so I hope everybody has a chance to, to have a look. And, and, and if you're absolutely. concerned about the future of our country, then I think that, that my book is partly, uh, you know, what you need to know to prepare yourself to win the struggle. Well, Kevin, it's a real pro- pleasure and honor to have you here on the Call to Rights Radio Show. Again, a recent Regnery book, The Drift, subtitled Stopping America's Slide to Socialism, written by Kevin A. Hassett, former chairman of President Trump's Council of Economic Advisors, and so much more here. Kevin, you'd be kind enough to stay on the line with us as we go to the hard break at the bottom of the hour. This concludes another exciting edition of the Gold to Rights Radio Show again. Talking about American exceptionalism, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights. And as we always say in our radio show, Kevin, the main theme of the radio show is always refuse to be a victim because a victim, in our opinion, is simply someone with no options. Fight back legally and responsibly. We do appreciate your time here on the Call to Rights Radio Show. Well over 15 years talking about these great subjects. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you.